The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. We've had over a week off between England games. It's nearly felt like the old days, when I used to fill the long dead periods between test matches by cutting pictures of my favourite players out of magazines and getting into heated arguments about selection with anyone I could pick a fight with. Talking of which, my Guardian colleague Andy Bull has just got back from a family camping trip. It was a fairly extreme way to avoid watching England go 1-0 down, but pretty effective by all accounts. Adam Collins is back. I know we make a lot of jokes about him being the hardest working Australian in the press box, but I actually went to a party with him last week and halfway through it, he snuck downstairs to write a piece. Anyway, apparently he couldn't fit everything he wanted to say about Steve Smith into one show, so he's here again. And Bharat Sundarason of Crick Buzz, he's just got back from the tour match at Worcester, a town he's fallen a little bit in love with, if his tweets are anything to go by. He's obviously never tried to get a train back on a Sunday after a game. Anyway, time to go start that argument. It's the spin! Can England bounce back at Lords this week? Can Justin Langer's Australia wear down Jofra Archer? And can anybody get Steve Smith out? Please? Pretty please? With women's cricket confirmed for the Commonwealth Games, we'll ask whether we want cricket at the Olympics as well. And which England cricketer has announced he wants to join Strictly Come Dancing? I'll tell you later. Sadly, it's not Michael Atherton. It's the spin! I'm Emma John and this is The Spin, the cricket podcast which, like Jason Roy, has a tendency to get overexcited and lose our head, and is still getting away with it this far. Around the boundary of our oval table today, representing Australia, Adam returns. Uh, Representing England, we have Andy. Barrett's offering his neutral, but we hope not disinterested observations, although he hasn't arrived yet. We'll come back to that. (laughs) Michael Afton's picture is still here, saving a seat for him. And can I just say happy anniversary to him for yesterday? It was 23 years since he took his last test wicket. Andy, you're a fellow Athers fan. Do you remember who it was? 23 years? Yeah, 1996. No, I don't. Wally Makram, his fellow Lancashire ah. teammate. Oh, in the Pakistan know, yeah. series. You can watch that on YouTube. <laughs> that and I have. <laughs> what other anniversaries of Mike have you kept? I wonder <laughs> if you've got. You're keeping 23 years of his last test. That, that must mean you've got a fairly deep Excel spreadsheet with all these different markers. Well, we we will certainly be celebrating his first test wicket in a week and a half's time. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> So, we're going to start with a loosener because some of us need to work our confidence back after last week's thrashing. And the loosener today is simply this. Where did you last see Bharat Sundarason? Oh, gosh. Well, it was 2am this morning. (laughs) Bharat had just finished what must have been a a two to three hour deep and meaningful with Mitchell Johnson at the Hampstead Cricket Club at the end of our live podcast recording. It was deep, it was meaningful, it was it was special. I didn't see them leaving an Uber together, but I couldn't completely put a line through it either. So that, that might account for his tardiness. Okay, could be anywhere. 
I mean, there's no point even me even answering that. I'm not going to have anything like because you so haven't good an you answer. haven't seen him. <laughs> yeah. You haven't seen him in yeah. ages. No, well, yeah, as, as you know, I've been hiding out in the wilds of uh, his <laughs> darkest Devon, and I definitely didn't see him down there. <laughs> You set off on holiday halfway through the first test at Edgbaston when England had a first innings lead of 90. So I hate to break this to you, but we lost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, my, my recollections of that game seem to be much more positive than all other English people's are. Uh, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I'm feeling quite optimistic about this series. <laughs> well, we have the squads for the second test at Lords now. I am wearing my MCC cap, by the way, at a jaunty angle because Most it's fetching. a Lords test. It, yes. I, I love the I love that you really embrace this MCC membership to the point where it's affecting your dress sense before the <laughs> test has even begun. <laughs> Yeah, just imagine me in a Harlequin cap. So England confirmed that Jimmy Anderson is out for the foreseeable future with his calf injury and Jofra Archer comes into the side to make his test debut. Jofra was given a run out in the Sussex seconds and took six wickets in 12.1 overs and scored a quick fast century, finishing with 108 from 99 balls. Does that prove anything, Andy? Well, uh, no, not really, does it? I mean, <laughs> it so he's obviously in, in reasonable form, but yeah, second 11 cricket, I think. The standard was not great, but he still had to t- he still had to run in and bowl, and he's proved his fitness, if nothing else. Yeah, it was odd, though, wasn't it? Jason Gillespie uh, was kind of saying he was fit to play that first test anyway. He didn't really understand why England hadn't put him straight in. Six wickets in twelve point one overs is not it's not exactly going to wear him down the way Justin Lang has been saying he's going to wear him down. I just love the response of those poor second eleven batsmen facing Jofra Archer. Fair to say that their foot and the ball weren't in the same postcode when they're edging through to the cordon. <laughs> Was most enjoyable to watch from a fast bowling perspective. The the, the just the Justin Langer um, commentary from a couple of days ago about well we want to see him in a third spell and a fourth spell. Very Australian, very very much. We're going to drive you into the ground, mate. And Joffrey Archer at his press conference yesterday, big broad smile, saying he's got another thing coming. I bowl lots of third and fourth spells in county cricket over the years. I always bowl the most amount of overs in the side when I'm leading the attack. So, look, granted, there isn't a massive sample size for Joffrey Archer with the red ball, but you watch the compilation of wickets uh, that's doing the rounds on social media at the moment. The amount of movement he generates with the red ball is frightening. So if you can get it hooping at Lords, it won't just be the pace, it'll be the movement as well. The other change for England is Jack Leach, who's replaced Moeen Ali. That's kind of an act of mercy as much as anything, isn't it? Yeah, on who though? Because uh, Jack Leach, I feel a bit worried for him. I mean, he's hardly bowled in the last month, has he? What's he had three overs, was it, against Ireland in mm. that test match? Do you think they're actually likely to pick him in the side at all? Well, yeah, I think they probably will need a spinner because um, the pitch is supposed to be quite... Well, they say dry underneath and the forecast is terrible all week. So who knows, with a forecast that wild... Maybe they will do something really surprising and not pick him. But, I mean, yeah, three overs in a month is no kind of preparation for playing your first Ashes test. Um, yeah, especially when people are now saying he's the man who's got to get Steve Smith out. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, he's got this huge responsibility. I was watching Smith bat in the nets at Lords on Sunday, and there was a net of in exclusively made up of left-arm orthodox club bowlers. And I had a chat to one of the, the kids afterwards who was bowling to Smith, and he goes, just bowling a dot ball to Stephen Smith an achievement. But there was a lot of back and forth between the bowlers and, and Smith in, in his usual quirky way. And he batted for like an hour and a half, as usual, on an optional training day. So on the basis that he knows that 
Jack Leach is going to be playing this test match. There is a statistical um, quirk with Smith that he averages 35 against slow left arm orthodox compared to, I guess, he averages 63 in all test innings. So that that is a bit of an outlier. But when you consider that Dean Elgar is responsible for two of those dismissals, <laughs> it does start to undermine the stat to a certain extent. But, you know, like I, I see the thinking there at least, a little bit like Kevin Peterson for a while there, that every side would play a left arm tweaker against England because Peterson had that, that small quirk in his statistical breakdown. I, I see why England would want to do it. But you're right, Andy, if they do want to get Sam Curran into this 11, they might have to do something funky, whether it's the batting order, um, whether they want to bat one of the bowlers in the top four like Chris Wokes, which has been talked about a little bit given how well he's going at the moment. He has played as a batsman in test cricket, albeit five years ago when he made his debut. Or another way, anyway, really, of getting Sam Curran in the 11, which doesn't necessarily mess with the balance too much. So it could well be at the expense of Jack Leach, but it would be a bold move going into a test match at Lords without some kind of spin option. And they haven't made any changes into the batting lineup at all, despite the fact that they're batting well as as you failed to see Andy because you were camping uh, <laughs> looked pretty tame in the second innings I think that the, the, the Denley uh, I wouldn't call it an experiment it wouldn't be fair to say a guy coming in at age 33 you're not taking a punt there's a fairly big sample size of evidence of him playing county championship cricket for the last 15 years or whatever it is so but if they were to make a change he was the logical person to move on and they've backed him in they're giving him a second opportunity which seems fair procedurally given he was probably the best of the England batters at Lords when there was all that chaos around him against Ireland although of course he got ran out by Joe Root and didn't get to go on with it but I suppose they owed him another opportunity but if it doesn't go well this week, he'll be the he'll be the first one out the door. And who do they turn to, though? This is the problem. In the middle of a series, if it doesn't work out, it, you're scratching around for players with very little international experience. Or alternatively, you're going right outside the square. And I don't know, maybe the call will go out to Owen Morgan. You've won the World Cup. You have played Test cricket. Can you come and do a job for your adopted nation? I would love to see that. I would love to see Owen Morgan come back into the side, even just be a non-playing captain, like in Ryder Cup style. <laughs> just sit on the balcony. Make and decisions. Gesture with his hands. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would be quite good, but I don't think Owen has any interest in playing Test cricket anymore, sadly. How can we persuade him? We just need to, you know, sweeten the deal somehow. <laughs> I mean, he's also, I mean, he's got a pretty dismal Red Bull record. Yeah, he's got that problem that Josh Butler had for a while there, that he plays so little red ball cricket that when he does, it's almost, you can't really take the numbers seriously. When you're playing one or two games a year, what does your batting average even mean? Batting averages only really mean something after a a decent period of time. And I don't know how many red ball games would Owen Morgan played in the last five years. You could probably count them on your fingers. Morgan and Butler are quite similar in the sense that Morgan wanted, like Butler, to play his way into test cricket through playing white ball cricket. Uh, And when he got dropped from the test team, that was one of the reasons why he wanted to go off and play more white ball cricket and he thought his form in white ball cricket should earn him a test place but the England setup at the time didn't think that was a, a fair and reasonable thing for him to do and now the setup is different and actually that is more of a viable route into test cricket these days so you know if Morgan was a few years younger if England had changed their thinking a few years earlier he probably would have had a longer and quite successful test career I think he might be captaining both sides yeah I mean again he he scored two test centuries, didn't he? has an average of 33. You look at some of the players they've dropped since they tried Morgan. Did they ever really find anyone better? I'm not sure they did. The only uh, precedent, of course, would be 1981, dare I say it. England. Was right. it, were they two down in 81 when both of them were sacked and they called for Brealey? Yeah. 
I mean, they, <laughs> could they put the call out for Morgan? Brealey-esque? You're, you're saying, Emma, the, the, the non-playing skipper. I mean, I know Brealey was playing in theory, but what he was really doing was marshalling the troops. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep banging the drum on this. Not because I don't like Joe Root, by the way. I think Joe Root, you know, is a fine cricketer. but No, uh, but his batting would surely only improve if, oh, if he had the weight of this captaincy taken off his shoulders. Well, this is the argument for Stephen Smith, isn't it? That if Tim Payne were to retire sooner rather than later, and if they did ask Stephen Smith to do the job again, I don't want them to ask ask him to do it because he'll probably say yes and I don't think it's in his interest to be the captain of Australia I think you get the best of both worlds with him having all his little ideas in the field and and and, and still sort of controlling the field placings to an extent but without the burden of being the captain of Australia it's it's a bit of a cliched thing to say that it's the second most important job in Australia after the Prime Minister but there's a reason people say it it's because the expectations and, and the pressure and the scrutiny is, is equivalent to a political leader so and Australia is a different country to, to England in that respect in that the national men's test side does carry a disproportionate amount of coverage compared to every other sport. So I hope that Smith's never put into that position again. It feels kind of inevitable, though, doesn't it? Pain is not going to go on that much longer, presumably. Yeah. Smith's ban lasts, what? Until March. He can't be captain until March. Right. So you kind of, you can see these two paths converging, can't you, really? Yeah, you can. And I think that's a worrying sign because, yeah, Smith will do whatever he's asked to do. He'll do what seemed to be the right thing. And if if the Board of Cricket Australia want him to captain again, I I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. I think they need to think laterally there, though. They they never would have seen Tim Payne as a viable captain before the Sandpaper Farago. And and it's turned out he's done quite a good job. So I hope they, they kind of broaden their horizons as to who might be a decent captain for even a short-term burst, um, a senior player in the side that might be able to do it for 18 months or two years rather than worrying about, say, Travis Head, who who is in the side as vice-captain. But I wouldn't say that he's completely established yet. He played very nicely last week. But if he had a run run of bad form, he'd be out of the side within two or three test matches. And you need someone captaining who's got that security incumbency. Talking about Travis Head, as you said, he got runs in Worcester, but Cameron Bancroft struggled. Do you think there's a chance David Warner might have a new opening partner for this test, Adam? Uh, Bancroft's definitely going to play at Lords, but uh, they've all but confirmed that in the lead up to the test. So I, I can't see a last minute Marcus Harris inclusion, although Harris batted quite nicely at Worcester last week. And Bancroft, as you say, didn't make the runs that he would have liked in a tour game and dropped a couple of catches as well. Langer spoke quite a lot about Bancroft in his pregame uh, discussion with the, the written press and essentially saying that Bancroft putting too much pressure on himself and needs to chill out and enjoy his cricket again and that was a, a strong theme after the sandpaper disaster it was that Bancroft heaped so much pressure on himself that he was starting to you know lose the forest from the trees to a certain extent which helped inform why he made that disastrous decision in the in the dressing room at Newlands so I think that was a, a strong signal from the coach doing it publicly through the media that he wants Bancroft just to just to chill out and enjoy his cricket again and if he were to they do want a left hand right hand combination they do want Bancroft to succeed at test level they do think he's got the the application to bat for long periods of time his first class numbers to Jesse has that ability as well. So they'll keep with him this week, but you wouldn't want to be Cameron Bancroft with a with a double failure at Lords heading into the back half of the series with Marcus Harris breathing down your neck. And what about the bowling attack? Clearly there's no reason for Australia to make any changes there, but do you think they might? Yeah, I, I think they might. I, I, look, it, it's hard to know for sure, but Josh Hazelwood was the pick. It was the last week. James Pattinson said to me a couple of days ago that he thinks he would 
will play one of the next two tests. Remember, they're back-to-back. Lords then leads. There's a three-day gap between the pair of them. So, uh, look, with Pattinson, if they were to leave him out, it wouldn't be on the basis of form. He bowled quite nicely at Edgebaston on his test return. It'd be um, to maximise the chance of him getting through the series without acquiring another back injury. So, look, Hazelwood would be in the frame for Pattinson on that basis. I can't see any logical reason why you'd leave out Peter Siddle. Uh, He was outstanding uh, in terms of doing his job bang on last week that is not giving England an inch and, and Pat Cummins is the attack leader they'll rest Cummins when they've retained the ashes I think is the thinking there they'll, they'll play him in the first three tests and if they've got the job done then they'll they'll give themselves some flexibility at the back end with Cummins but yeah maybe Hazelwood for Pattinson but, but other than that they're, they're in pretty good shape at the moment they're spoilt for choice uh, the other thing they are spoilt for choice with is the number of heavyweight ex-players in their dressing room right now Justin Langer Ricky Ponting Steve Waugh Rory Burns made a point of saying how inspired he was by talking to the 2005 winning team. So I've been wondering, should England be inviting more ex-players into their dressing room? I was thinking maybe the newly stacked Chris Tremlett. Have you seen the newly stacked Chris Tremlett? I was thinking maybe he could stand on the balcony just being really intimidating like a Do we need to, like, you know, get some big hitters in there to, to start calling some shots the way Australia are doing? Well, I mean, this is, is something this England team did, wasn't it? It was b- try and build better relationships with the ex-players, particularly the ones in the media, so that I remember there were stories about them going out for dinner with Bob Willis, and I think they spent a lot of time with both of them, and... Things like that, just to try and uh, encourage the players to see the current generation of players not to look at those older guys as, as their enemies. Um, yeah, but, people who are doing them down on the yeah. on the TV or on the radio. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. there was a time when England got quite obsessed and quite chippy about all that, didn't they? Mm. Um, but you know, whether I don't know, I don't want to say anything rude about um, them, but what, how inspirational, motivational, you know, uh, having Ian Botham indeed Bob Willis in, in the dressing room would be at this point I'm not sure um, I suppose just, just it might make them it could... might it might make them bat more time because you would be desperate to be out in the middle <laughs> <laughs> if they would go back to the, the last successful England side the, the one that went to the top of the world uh, I guess the trick there would be you couldn't have players from opposing rival factions on the balcony at the same time they might start a punch on themselves so (laughs) how you'd manage through that might be a complicating factor there we will all be sat in the press box for the next few days but it's actually quite a cold quiet and detached place to watch the cricket from if we're totally honest so if we could all go and sit somewhere else at Lawns, where do you think would be the best place to watch from i mean i i know where the best place to watch from is but i'm just going to see if you're right Right. <laughs> okay, that's good. The only place I ever sit is in the, the beneath the press centre. The Edridge. That's, well, that, that's 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 okay. Yeah, the Edridge that's and the Compton have changed a bit, haven't they? They're, they're a bit looser than when I first went to Lords. I feel like that's the, they're the seats now where you, we, we might see some booing of Warner and Smith and Bancroft during the week. When I first came to Lords in 2005, it didn't have that sort of feel to it. It just felt like an extension of the broader Lords apparatus, but it seems to have opened up a bit. At the back of the nursery, it's pretty loose now. When You, you notice when that's become a big old drinking pen, really, with the big screen set up, synced up to the game on the field so that people can dig in as they often do at other sporting events but I like the corner the Plum Warner which is the new stand which they built a couple of years ago on the other side the Gubby Allen stand in the corner there so you're still next to the pavilion you're not with the the stuffy types like you Emma you're in the no no but they're still members <laughs> no I know they're still members but you, you it, but have to yeah you have to not, be with a member to get in sure but it doesn't feel quite as memberish to me and I like how it's kind of like that's the the least 
attractive of the stands. It's coming down in the redevelopment in the next 10 years. They're rebuilding that in the tavern, aren't they, yeah. at the same time? And so re- rebuilding the Edrich and Compton as well. First, yeah, that's a beautiful design. That's starting after this test match, actually. They're knocking them down and going up nice and high and building two huge sails, which will uh, encompass the press box. It'll be quite savvy when they when they rebuild that but yeah I like the two corners either side of the, of the pavilion I like the corners but I'm, I still think the best is Upper Compton because from there you're properly like you're on the right angle to pretty much looking over the bowler's arm mm. but you can still see especially for a right-handed batsman the lower is pretty grim though yeah it was good during the island test match because it was 35 degrees outside so you could hide underneath there and yeah, get some respite right. but usually when it's the average temperature during the summer here and you're under there it feels like you need a jumper on and that's not ideal at the cricket so do you have you tried all the oh yeah how many seats have you I've tried got, i've got opinions about every single stand <laughs> i mean i can't understand why the grandstand is like people's favorite place to watch because you're side on to the wicket who yeah. wants to sit side on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where all the posh boxes are. I was going to say, yeah, they've got the uh, they've got all that, that that's the, the ECB box where they always cut to on the television. Yeah. Seems to be directly square, isn't it? Right on top yeah. of the of the yeah. MCC. Theresa right. May was Banner. sitting during the Island Test, yeah. uh, and many other members of her uh, recently deposed cabinet. We <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> were treated to that. They were spent many happy hours chatting to Colin Graves and Tom Harrison. I like how we get a list of celebrities um, in the press box as to who's who to look out for through the day and they in that Australia-England World Cup game wasn't it Andy when we got given a list of people and it was Nigel Farage it was Jacob Rees-Mogg they're all on the piece of paper we were given I'm like well what constitutes a celebrity I don't know (laughs) Barrett's here hello everybody (laughs) welcome thank you have you just come straight from Mitchell Johnson next question please (laughs) (laughs) And on to the next topic. We've discussed previously the prospect of women's cricket being part of the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham in 2022. And this week it's been confirmed. No doubt Adam will be vlogging every game. There's also increasing speculation that cricket could be included in the 2028 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. After the BCCI joined the anti-doping agency WADA, which is a prerequisite for Olympic inclusion. So with representatives around the table of the three most powerful nations in cricket... Guys, do you want cricket at the Olympics? Is that an official, an unofficial representative of... <laughs> yes. Okay. We, we are now deciding the future <laughs> of cricket Sounds right fair. here and now. Fine. We're the big three. Fill your boots. <laughs> <laughs> well, as the uh, Adelaide representative of India, uh, I think... Uh, Nah, I'm not a big fan of cricket at the Olympics. Don't we already have enough cricket? Yeah, and I think cricket should be, like, as, I guess, a representative of the BCCI as well, cricket should remain, like, should just be played between five countries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll have the have the rest over on and off, like, you know, we'll have Bangladesh once in 20 years. We'll, we go to Zimbabwe a lot, by the way. I don't know whether we will anymore. But uh, I think we have enough cricket already. The Olympics, that too in the USA, it'll basically again be Indians and Pakistani expats at the ground playing the sport. So... Yeah, I mean, let them do something else. Like, they can't just be not good enough to play cricket on their street in India and then just, like, represent a country. Like, there are a few who have captained USA who I don't think would have been good enough to, yeah, get into their club teams in Bombay. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Andy? Would you like to see some Olympic cricket backs for the first time since 1900? Yeah, no, I wouldn't, actually. I'm not not a fan either. And I love, partly because I love the Olympics so much. I mean, Mm. I've been to four of them now for the Guardian and the Olympics doesn't need cricket the the only thing 
the Olympics wants out of cricket is a slice of the Indian TV audience, the same as everyone else. Um, but cricket wants something out of the Olympics. Surely they want to grow the game and make it more global. Yeah, I mean, the one major upside of being in the Olympics is that it would open up new sources of funding because there's a lot of government funding that goes into Olympic sports. So it would and help. it would give it more visibility. Well, it would, would it? It would, would be it? on free-to-air TV in, in the UK right, for right, a right, right. But I mean, did golf, do you think golf is more visible because they played it at Rio? No, because when you have an event like this at the Olympics, it happens in its own bubble because cricket doesn't really fit in to the Olympics. So they, they'll put, build a stadium somewhere outside the Olympic Village and the cricket will be based there for the duration of the Games. It'll go on in its own little bubble for like two weeks. And unless you're into cricket, you're not necessarily going to be tuning in to watch that. Sorry, I'm going to really rant and rave about this now. <laughs> I'm not even sure the Olympic movement would want cricket other than for the Indian TV audience because the Olympics right now is all about trying to scale back and make itself more sustainable. They're having real trouble getting cities to bid for the Olympics right now for exactly those reasons. And then you're then going to come along and say, well, actually, we want you to bring in this sport, cricket, that requires a bespoke stadium that you're never really going to use again because you don't play cricket in your country. And it's going to require you to build accommodation for literally hundreds of new competitors because we've got all these teams and they're 11 aside. And on top of that, you've got the issue that very few of those countries are actually going to have reasonable chances of winning medals. So unlike Rugby 7, say, which is short and snappy and over quite quickly in a weekend, cricket's going to drag on, and at the end of it, you pretty much know who's going to be in the final anyway, because it's going to be one of about four or five teams. Come on, Adam, you've got to be with me. You've got to want an, a, an Olympic cricket tournament because it's one of the few things Australia haven't won yet. <laughs> of course I'm in favour of cricket at the Olympics. Uh, I, I share a lot of Andy's points, by the way. That The, the, the points around, around the, what the Olympic movement are trying to get out of cricket are self-evident. But I see. I think there is a growth argument, both uh, in terms of people outside of our traditional cricket bubble and also for the women's game, because uh, the fact that the Olympic Games would have to have a tournament which would be equal in size for men and women would give an opportunity for women's cricketers on that stage, on that free-to-air platform every single night. So the Commonwealth Games is a, is a tremendous achievement. Uh, Claire Connor and her team at the ECB working in collaboration with the ICC last year when the Commonwealth games got shifted to Birmingham at last minute after Durban had it um, removed from their their hosting responsibilities there. Um, they saw a chance to get cricket back on the BBC at, in prime time, you know, for 14 days in a row or whatever it will be. And that's a great opportunity, even though the Commonwealth Games has been relegated to a, a secondary competition perhaps in the last 20 years or so. But yeah, the Olympics, for, for reasons that I'm probably a glass half full guy as a, as, a, as a starting point, I think that it could have some benefits to growing the sport, bringing it to new people. But the one caveat I agree. Let's not start it in America. The city that should be hosting the, the 2032 Olympics, of course, should be Melbourne. Uh, and uh, and, and um, whether the Victorian government bid for it or not, um, I'll certainly be lobbying hard for them to bid for it. Cause we, we can uh, I'll lick a paint to a couple of stadiums and we can host it tomorrow. We've got the infrastructure already. We're the sporting capital of the world, of course. And, and imagine having a cricket tournament for the first time in the Olympic Games since 1900 held probably not at the MCG but one of the myriad cricket grounds that we have in the great state of Victoria that's when we should do it 2032 I mean that, that's a great idea but compare it you want to have cricket at Tokyo next year and you're going to say to the Japanese well if you want to host the Olympics you need to build a stadium that's going to host cricket for two weeks what are the Japanese going to do with that I mean come on it's a ridiculous idea having cricket in Tokyo the, the Japanese hosted exhibition AFL games on their baseball stadiums in the 80s so you know they, right. they got resourceful there but I'm not sure if it would quite translate to cricket the only one advantage 
we'll get from cricket being at the Olympics is we'll get China playing cricket and because China will look at it as another chance to win a medal yeah so if not in 2028 or 2032 at least in 20 whenever the Olympics is in the 2050s they might win a medal and it's not a bad idea to bring the Chinese into cricket because uh, again big population big audience more cash we'll Remind you of that when you're 80 and India have just lost their 10th successive bilateral test series to China. There is something to be said for that, though. Look at the, look at the schools. The, uh, I, I was briefed by someone recently that the, the public schools in, in the UK at the moment, a lot of the students coming here from China have taken to mm. cricket. So watch this space for these young 10, 11, 12 year olds who are getting sent over to the UK for their schooling, whether we'll see some um, kids of Chinese extraction uh, making it into the professional game soon. And on the other side of the coin, in some of the, the poorer socioeconomic areas of the UK, uh, a, a lot of Polish kids have taken to cricket. So there, there could be a very different mixture of players that we have fronting up for England in a generation or two. And, and the Olympics could help with that too. I don't want to be down on it, but you're right. It would be great for growth and development of the game. Absolutely. And, and The Asian Cricket Council have done a lot of great work developing the game in China already. Yep. I'm happy to wait until 2032 because that means we've got another 13 years of Great Britain still being the reigning Olympic champions <laughs> at cricket. Because obviously, as we all remember, uh, we beat them in France. Uh, we beat, beat no, France. we beat France in, France. 19, in France. We beat the hosts France. The French in team 1900. was mainly made up of English people. That did, did you win the tug of war afterwards as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the spoon race. Uh, there is some breaking Australia t- team news, Adam. They're leaving out James Pattinson, which what? I mean, you know, these things happen when you've got a rotation policy. You've got to rotate. So uh, Hazelwood and Stark are in the twelve. Pattinson is out of the twelve. So that almost guarantees that he'll play at Leeds next week. But it'll be out of Stark and Hazelwood for who gets to start at Lords, which both providing interesting arguments. Stark bowls well on the slope at both ends. He's got a fantastic white ball record here. Hazelwood was far better at Worcester last week. Yep. Frugal, effective, um, seems to be in good nick. I know Barat, you were writing about him last week. So um, depending on, I guess, what they see with the surface in the morning will dictate their move there. But yeah, fascinating that they've left Pattinson out on a surface which I thought would be purpose-built for him. But alas, as I say, if you're going to have this rotation policy, you've got to show some nimbleness. You can't just decide to do it after three or four test matches. Googlies, slog sweeps, dibbly-dobbly bowlers. There are lots of reasons kids like cricket. It's fun to say, fun to play. It also keeps them moving, gets them talking and helps them focus, which is why NatWest thinks everyone should have a chance to play. It partners with Chance to Shine, a cricket charity bringing the game to schools and communities across the country to give young people new skills, new experiences and more chances to use silly words. From the school kids turned brilliant bowlers to the city tape ball teams, NatWest has paired up with the Guardian Labs to tell more stories of making cricket a game for all. Read them at theguardian.com forward slash natwest dash cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. This is The Spin from The Guardian, the podcast that won't rest until the England cricket coach is as well known as the Trevor Bayliss who invented the wind-up radio. <laughs> Andy Bull, Adam Collins and Barrett Sundarason are my guests and it's time to look around at some other cricket stories which have caught our eye this week. The end of the World Cup cycle has seen a few more retirements in the past few days. Hashim Amla called an end to his 15-year international career. His 9,282 runs in tests for South Africa are bettered only by Jack Callis and his eight 
8,113 one-day runs are the third highest <coughs> overall. Also retiring from Test cricket is South Africa's all-time leading wicket-taker Dale Steyn, considered the best fast bowler of his generation. So how are the Proteas going to do without them against India and England this winter? Barrett, what do you reckon? Guys seem to retire a lot these days, right? Like, I thought Dale Stain was retired a few years ago. Brendan McCullen, I thought, was retired many years ago. But, like, there are so many retirements that... And we... Poor Afridi gets a flack for it, right? Everybody (laughs) thinks of only Afridi having retired many times. So, well, South African cricket is not in a good place right now. They had a terrible World Cup. There seems to be issues with the board, with the players. Otis Gibson, like I remember, he did a mixed zone after their last game against Australia and Manchester. And he seemed pretty confident that he can build this team uh, towards the next World Cup. And they threw him out. So, uh, I don't know. But Dale Stein hasn't played much cricket for South Africa anyway. I think they had moved on from him. And Faf Duplessis coming out and saying that he didn't want him to go to the IPL and then him going to the IPL and getting injured. I think they had moved on from him. Hashim Amla, again, like he's not done much in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, I don't think they w- Hashim wanted to go to India, play on rank turners, four test matches, get his average, like, you know, reduced by five points maybe <coughs> and retire then. So I'm not surprised they're gone because South African cricket is in, th- there are going to be many changes and it's not a bad thing really that these guys are moving on. Andy, you've been thinking about Dale Stain even this morning. Well, I have, yeah. Um, but only in so much as everyone is thinking about Dale Stain being a great bowler, as you say, the best of, of his generation, best fast bowler of his generation. Um, and there was a sort of period, remember, when, who was it? Was it David Saker, I think, when he was England's bowling coach, was saying that Jimmy Anderson was the most skilled bowler in the world. And there was a lot of debate uh, about whether that was actually true. Uh, and an argument in particular about him versus Stain. And, and in the end, even Jimmy came out and said, actually, no, Stain is a better bowler than I am. Uh, but South African cricket more generally is, Barrett's right, they're, they're in a, a bad place. But one interesting possible development is that if we end up with a no-deal Brexit, then they'll have to stop having Colpac players in mm. county cricket. Mm. And there will be suddenly a flood of South African professionals looking for jobs and work and employment and possibly heading back to South Africa, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, which is quite a random thing to bring up. But, you know, it's obviously a huge part of what's gone wrong with South African cricket lately. Not just that they've lost those players, but the reasons why those players have been leaving. Basically, they can earn more money over here. Yeah, I think of a bowler like Kyle Abbott, who right. uh, left after dominating against Australia a couple of years ago and, and went coal pack, understandably, given the financial oh. considerations. Adam, just for anybody who has not heard the word coal pack or the term coal pack before, mm. could you just really briefly explain what that is? Well, the, the trade agreement that uh, links together the European Union uh, with other countries they trade with, isn't it, Andy? The, the the, the, the legality of it was challenged by a handball, European handball player by the name of Colpac, which meant that um, if you are in a trade agreement with the European Union and you are from a country like South Africa, which does have one, you can therefore play here if you renounce your ability to play for your country of birth, you're entitled to play domestic cricket in the UK. So the, the provision there, of course, being that um, the minute you go Colpac, so to speak, uh, you're forfeiting your chance to play for your country. So it's a big decision, but the opportunities for players who are not earning as much money, there's a lot of discussion now from the, the, the Global Players Union about a minimum match fee that could be brought in across the countries, because the disparity between, say, Australia and South Africa, I think it's six times the amount of money mm. an Australian will make per test match. Um, I, I'm not trying to say that South Africans are, are not earning a good 
income and a good living, but the longer term sustainability of county cricket, especially on these bigger deals at the bigger clubs, you can make more money and, and you, you can't begrudge that of a fast bowler, especially when their career could be limited by injury. So there are some tweaks that could be made going forward, I think, to, to iron that out a bit. And it's a massive risk factor for South African cricket. Of course, we saw Dwayne Oliver mm. um, sign this year when he was probably the guy they were looking to replace Stain in the That's longer right. term. Now he's at Yorkshire talking about potentially qualifying for England. It's almost impossible to conceive how he would be able to without a British passport. But uh, the fact that they're even thinking that way shows that there is a, a, a fairly serious structural problem with South African cricket at the moment. And England are making the most out of this wait for Brexit. Yesterday they had Simon Harmer bowling off spin in their nets, preparing for Nathan Lyon. So England being England are <laughs> making the most of it. Um, but yeah, I think this is the right time to celebrate Dale Stane's career, as I'm sure you've done in your column, Andy. I can't wait to read it. The I remember Dale Stane, I think about those huge spells he bowled in Australia, 2008 the MCG, after those crucial runs he added with JP Dumini. And in 2012 at the Wacker, when the series was there to be won, Rocks up at Perth. Ricky Ponting's last test match. The Spelly Bowl that Saturday morning is the best spell of fast bowling I've ever seen. Um, and to think that he achieved such great feats over such a long period of time, you can't ever forget his wicket celebrations, which were the best. Those guttural roars, chainsaw and carrying on and all the rest and the passion that he played with, uh, he was a joy. Uh, he was a joyous cricketer. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we've uh, had the chance to uh, watch someone that good in his last generation. And that spell he bowled in Nagpur, you talk about the oh, backhand. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, 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 but to come to India and bowl a spell like that, blow India away, and he did it twice. And yeah. he ruined careers. Like, yeah, I think Dravid and those guys never recovered from that spell. To be honest, yeah. Oh, you, know, you, you were saying that you thought maybe he was slightly underappreciated. And I think if that's true anywhere, it's actually slightly true in England. Which well, is, this is this is it, because as we know, he never kind of had his, his best performances. He, I mean, he was still very, very good, but he was not as good as he was elsewhere in the world. Yeah, and his average mm. in England, I think, is about 32. And that's the highest of any of the countries he played in. Still a brilliant bowler, but not the kind of you know, world-beating figure that he was elsewhere. Barrett, you also mentioned Brendan McCullum. Uh, he has said goodbye to all cricket after a disappointing run in the Canadian T20 League. Uh, he's going to pick up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that phrase. It's like, that's such an ill-fitting way to end a great career. You know, that's like... <laughs> oh man, really? That's that's how it ends a disappointing run in the Canadian T20 League. Okay. That, that right. is. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Yeah. Brendan was an inspiration to England's one-day captain, Er Morgan. So should England fans be sending him thank you flowers for their World Cup win, do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hugely influential. And it's funny that there aren't, can't be many foreign captains who have had such a big influence on another country's cricket, but it was hugely influential for England. Yeah, absolutely. The Canadian League generally, uh, the fact they had to miss a game this week <laughs> when the players refused to get on the bus. I wish Brendan McCullum didn't finish his career there. Yeah. I had the great fortune of, of calling his uh, final test match in 2015 and obviously went on to play some, uh, sorry, 2016 rather, played some uh, white ball cricket thereafter in, 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 on the circuit and all the rest of it. But yeah, it doesn't feel quite right that this is the place to end. But what a career, uh, what an innovator. That that initial foray in the IPL, yeah, uh, he's such yeah. a big part of that story, isn't he, Barrett? Mm. No, no, he made the IPL. You speak about him retiring from other cricket, but... Indians will always remember Brendan McCullum. Without that innings, the IPL might not have been the like IPL we know today. That was the first time 
like you know people tune in to watch cricket and got to see Shahrukh Khan so much just because Brendan McCullum kept hitting sixes and Shahrukh Khan on the team <laughs> so every time he hit a six there would, would be Shahrukh Khan dancing and Indians were like wow so I can like pay for cricket and watch Bollywood so I, all thanks to Brendan McCullum like he just because that game was supposed to be Ganguly and Ponting playing together in the same team Dravid and Kumble and then like at that point he was not an unknown cricketer but nobody expected that from him and he made the IPL absolutely. remind us what the two teams were uh, Calcutta Knight Riders or Kolkata Knight Riders were playing Royal Challenges Bangalore in uh, a big Dravid versus Ganguly clash because this was a time like you know there were all these clashes going on and like I said Ponting and Ganguly people were like how will that like chemistry work mm. and then Brendan McCullum and Shah Rukh Khan took it away <laughs> Oh, that's fascinating. I'd never really thought about it like that. Is there, we were talking about how many retirements there are these days. I mean, we've had all three this week, right? So, Stain has done Test cricket. Uh, Amla has <laughs> done international done cricket. International and cricket. Brendan has now done all cricket. <laughs> yeah. So, those are the three levels of retirement. Uh, but the McCullum one, I mean, I kind of... Has anyone paid attention to, the, to the, his antics in the Canadian League? Maybe you have. Maybe I'm a terrible cricket journalist for not paying more attention to the No, Canadian. the only thing I knew about the Canadian League was, as Adam said, mm. that people didn't go to the ground because they weren't getting paid. This isn't good, is it? I mean, you look at the trajectory of these T20 comps. Yeah. Some of them will survive and thrive and mm. continue to be brilliant, and, and some of them simply won't. And there's a book that's going to be released shortly by Tim Wigmore and, and, and Freddie Wilde, which goes into some depth about this, about the idea that they will need to be amalgamations or they'll need to find a way to uh, make these smaller tier competitions financially sustainable otherwise you run into hurdles like this where they don't have the cash flow that they need to keep the players satisfied week to week when they're playing in the competition and it does reduce the credibility considerably but anyway Adam we don't, we don't need to worry like next year you guys will start the 100 four <laughs> years from then we'll start the 100 Premier League and then that'll be the <laughs> only white ball tournament in the world that anybody will care about <laughs> um, the ECB are going to love you Barrett <laughs> uh, okay what do Mark Ram Prakash, Graham Swan, Michael Vaughan, Phil Tufnell and Darren Goff all have in common. That's right, the Argentine tango. <laughs> but when Strictly Come Dancing announced this season's celebrities, there wasn't a batsman or bowler in sight. Disappointing. Which cricketer do we wish was going to be on Strictly this year? I mean, Johnny Bairstow has already said that he would like a go. He told Hello Magazine. Um, but is, is there anybody you would love to see in White Tie and Tails? Mitchell Johnson, Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> so Mitchell Johnson and I only discuss left arm fast bowling. We both like have slingy actions. We don't like the English and like yeah, that's what we have in common. But <laughs> I think Steve Smith. Steve Smith, but you'll have to give him a bat. Like he'll want to wear pads. <laughs> he'll need Graham Hick as his partner with a sidearm. So, but I think because that's what he does. I mean, he does a tango. He does all kinds of things when he's batting. And especially in the nets, you have to see him in the nets. Like what you see while he's batting in the middle is just one thing. You have to see him in the nets. He's just like, he's dancing. He's talking to himself. He's, it looks like he's singing to himself at times. It's just like, yeah, Steve Smith, think about it. Like, you know, and they have to like crown him champion anyway, because they wouldn't know how to get him off the stage to start. <laughs> That's a very good point. I, I like where you're going with that. As that great philosopher Shakira taught us, hips don't lie. And, and I think Smith, with all we see yeah, here at the crease at the moment, he seems to meet the criteria. But on that as well, we saw Joffre Archer dancing quite um, enthusiastically mm. post-World Cup. So I reckon Joffre, <laughs> you wouldn't want to do it while you're, while you're turning out for England in an Ashes series if, the, if you're in a clash. <laughs> but maybe, in, the, maybe uh, in, in 10 years' time, Joffre might be a good addition to the yeah, show. Yeah, I think he's got the moves. I was thinking that James Vince would probably look ridiculously elegant and then get out after oh, the 
whole show. <laughs> <laughs> like Joe Denley as well. David Gower's got nothing to do after, at the end mm. of this season. David Gower's probably an immaculate ballroom dancer. I bet he is. What about a tall, lank, lanky type like Andy Caddick? Roll him out on Strictly. Or Gus Fraser. Gus Fraser. Gus Fraser. Derek Pringle. <laughs> now, Derek Pringle. Get Derek Pringle on the. Get him on the ice one, Derek yeah. Pringle. <laughs> Well, it's time to say goodbye to my guests, Adam Collins, Andy Bull and Barrett Sunderason. On the next episode, we'll discuss England's stunning bounce back at Lords to levels the series. I'll just do that again. On the next episode, we'll discuss England's consecutive capitulations and slump to a 2-0 deficit. And just to be on the safe side, on the next episode, we'll discuss putting a roof on Lords after rain ruins the second test and it's still 1-0. If there's something you'd like to discuss on the show, you can get in touch with us anytime. Tweet me at m underscore john or email us at thespin at theguardian.com. And until after the Lords test, it's goodbye. <laughs> The Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.